0: Designers Podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Hey everybody, welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Meerhead, and I'll be your host for today. Joining me is Pete Lee. He is a location recordist, sound supervisor, and mixer based in London, England. He specializes in recording in extreme climate conditions. He's recorded in the Amazon jungles, the African deserts, the Arctic tundras, carrying his sound gear to capture the best sounds for the projects he's working on. And today we're going to find out if he's also caught pneumonia doing that. With a long history working alongside TV adventurer Bear Grylls on the Man vs. Wild series and multiple other specials, Pete has almost literally been everywhere he's breathed the mountain air he's traveled he's done his share he's crossed the deserts bare nominated for multiple bafta craft awards pete has also recently co-started the adventure film collective a group of seven cross-discipline filmmakers with vast experience with making media projects in the far corners of the world welcome pete how you doing today
1: Yeah, hi, Tim.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very well, thanks. Excellent. Yeah, it's quite an intro. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's quite a career you've had so far. appreciate it. Uh, Why don't you tell us how you got in? That's how we normally like to start these uh, interviews. Just how did you get into the sound business to begin with?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I got into sound just through being into music. You know, in my kind of teenage years, you have that musical awakening and uh, you get into that way and you start going to live gigs. And then you start buying records and you get into the sound of it all and stuff and and getting into hi-fi and that kind of thing. And then um, sort of realizing that it might be an interesting thing to make a career out of really. So I guess quite common in TV terms, certainly in the UK i have come across quite a few fellow recordists who have started out with an ambition to be involved in music, in the music scene, and then drifted into telly via one way or other. And for me, it was just a complete fluke. I had never considered sound for TV at all. And uh, there was an advert in my local paper that just asked for camera and sound assistance for a local facilities company. I didn't even know what that was at the time, but I thought sound assistance, okay, sounds interesting. I'll can give that a go. Um, and so at the time, what was I doing? I was uh, I was kind of just got involved in a little local recording studio. I was just starting to engineer demos for local bands and that kind of thing. And I was doing a bit of freelance acoustic engineering. I just kind of graduated out of university with a degree in electroacoustic engineering. So I sort of designed a semi-anechoic chamber and was doing some loudspeaker testing for a company and answered this advert in the local paper which was pretty surreal really because you know it's just this kind of silly little kind of local paper and obviously people desperately want to break into the TV industry and and do courses and everything and I just answered an ad that's normally full of kind of terrible jobs for cleaners and that kind of thing (laughs) i've done those jobs as well there's nothing wrong with that but yeah and um got involved in in telly and and got this first job and um and that was it really i thought it was was quite a lot of fun so it started from there
0: so how did you find yourself kind of would you say you specialize in uh, adventure location recording or extreme location recording um
1: yeah, well, it's kind of ended up that way, you know, your career is one of those things you sort of, you have moments when you steer it and you guide it, and then moments when you go with the flow, and there's always a lot of luck involved along the way, and certainly I've been very lucky to kind of just have some great breaks in my time, really. Um, it wasn't part of the plan, but it's definitely something that's become a very natural fit for me, it was a very good fit for me. Um, just going back, just when I started my career in TV, you know, my first job, it was completely kind of irrelevant. Um, to any of that kind of stuff. I I got taken on by this facilities company and they'd just got a contract to do this new kids' TV show um, that no one had ever heard of, it was a brand new thing. And so I got sent up to the English countryside for five months to go and live and work in Teletubby land and and basically worked on the first series of Teletubbies, (laughs) um, (laughs) which was out in the countryside, out in the rolling hills, but couldn't be further from any kind of adventure. Um, but it was a riot, it was great fun. And uh, and I sort of thought, okay, this TV thing could be quite quite a laugh, and sort of stuck with it from there. Uh, the adventure thing, I'd sort of always, um, as a teenager, kind of music was one passion, and another was the great outdoors. Um, I'd been in the Scouts, the Scouting Association, um, as a teenager, and then went through the sort of more formal kind of younger side of it, and then we went into the Venture Scouts, which was more kind of outdoorsy, doing our own thing and um, it got a bit more adventurous with that. So I had a good bit of a grounding in kind of going outdoors and kind of hiking and canoeing and climbing and all all that kind of stuff. So when the adventure thing came along, it just ticked all the right boxes and I just fitted in quite naturally and, you know, was quite happy, sort of, out in that environment, and I think that's that's the main thing that helps, really. It's just if you're if you're happy in that environment, you know, you just get along, and and you know, it works as a freelancer. You just roll from one thing to another, and you know, off the basis of how you are, how you cope with one job, and and getting on with people, on a personal level, you that's how you kind of get your next jobs and stuff, isn't it? And it just rolled on from one thing to another, and and it just works for me very well. It's something that I love doing. And um, I think when you love doing something, you enjoy it. And that helps you, you know, helps things kind of roll on to the next thing, if that makes sense.
0: It makes perfect sense. I love that you got your first gig by answering an ad in a newspaper and actually getting hired, which is, I don't even know if I've ever heard of that happening before. (laughs) And then your first big production is an international sensation, the Teletubbies. So you had a sweet horseshoe going on there.
1: Yeah, so that's quite, quite surreal, really. You know, your first gig is something that, I mean, I worked on that first series and, you have no idea what you're doing. It's my first kind of job in telly. No idea what telly's all about. You do this thing and can't quite believe that someone's created this landscape out in the English countryside. And then then the next year, it's suddenly it's massive and it's going all around the world and it's probably been seen by, I don't know, I keep hearing figures of like 100 million or 200 million viewers worldwide saw it, you know, have seen Teletubbies and you can kind of go anywhere in the world from Brazil to India and find people who, you know, you try and tell them what you do and you tell them you worked on Teletubbies and they connect with it and they know it, they've seen it.
0: Yeah, I'm in Canada and I know that it was uh, a huge sensation here, both with little kids and with high college students. (laughs)
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It definitely had that that aspect to it, kind of worked on two levels. (laughs) And of course now they're remaking it. Oh, I didn't know um, that. Which is quite quite surreal. Yeah, 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 so there's there's new series of it all kind of going out. And um, yeah, they've, they've filmed a new series. I think they've just done filmed the second series. And actually some of the guys that were involved in the first original series are now shooting the second series. I went along and did a couple of days on it last year, which was quite fun to go and do. Just um, changed a lot now. Now it's all studio based, all kind of green screen and stuff. But yeah, it's fun to go and see and do. And, and a lot of the people that were involved in that first series 20 years ago are kind of doing it again now
0: cool so let's talk about you uh going to these extreme environments i think what our listeners are going to really want to hear from you is kind of what gear you use and how it why you make gear decisions based on the environments that you're going to so do you take different recorders or mics if you know you're going somewhere cold compared to somewhere hot or do you have some gear that you trust that's rock solid yeah not so much kind of Different from cold to hot, I think we're very lucky. We've got some
1: great manufacturers, but you definitely have things that you trust and you know that work pretty well in all different environments. I mean, kind of hot and humid is that's the thing that really sets alarm bells ringing for me. You know, going to jungles, you know, you always want to have a four one six in your bag because that's that's the mic that's never going to give up. Um, but other than that, it's just been sort of. You know, kit has evolved and you just learn what you can trust. I'm a massive fan of sound devices, recorders. You know, their stuff has just been bulletproof pretty much since day one. You know, Um, I was really impressed. We we Brits, you know, I started in this era when we used to use SQN mixers and they were sort of the bulletproof industry standard four-channel mixer and everyone used that mixer. And then sound devices came along with the 442, um, which was an amazing mixer. And I took both of them out to a jungle and actually... My SQN, which I loved, and all British mixers all, all love our SQNs. You know, actually, had this pretty extreme humidity and uh, and rain, and and the SQN packed up, and the the four four two kept going, and I had a. 744T as well with it, using that as a combo, the 442, 744T, and it just kept going throughout these just terrible conditions of mud and rain, and and it would have these huge downpours, and then the sun would come out, and all the rain would turn to to steam, and you just see these clouds of steam everywhere, and all that steam and moisture would get sucked into all the kit, and that's when everything would start to break down. In fact, even 416s started breaking down on us as well. It was so bad, everything 48 volts started to die, um, and I think the only mic I had left working, I had an 816 with me. It's a massive, great big thing. Uh, and it was a T-Power mic. And that was the only thing that was left working. All the 48 volts camera mic inputs on the cameras were all going down. but had a couple of 48 volt 416s go down. Um, and so I was running around the jungle doing this actuality stuff um, with, with an 816, kind of <laughs> trying to avoid trees and, and spiky thorn bushes and all this kind of stuff. And that kept working. So. And so did the sound devices stuff. And so I instantly knew I could trust that gear in those environments. And so I've always kind of relied on sound devices gear. And and from that moment on, from that shoot on, I thought I'd better buy myself a T-powered 416 as well, Um, just because that seemed to be something that that, that never gave up. So yeah, I always make sure I take a T-powered mic with me, a T-powered 416. Um, And sound devices gear has just gone on to never let me down really, Um, whether it's deserts or jungles or Arctic conditions. Yeah, no matter whether you know that stuff gets kind of so hot, you feel like you could fry an egg on it at times, and it still keeps going. So, yeah, I just love it. I did, (laughs) um, I've never, I mean, having said that, I haven't really used many other bits of kit. I went to look at some Zaxcom gear before the 633 came out, the sound devices recorder. I went to look at a Zaxcom Max. I was desperate for a smaller form recorder, um, having been using either a 442 with a 744 um, or the 788, you know, all brilliant bits of kit, but I needed something smaller. It was getting dangled off the end of ropes and sort of on cliffs and that kind of thing and wanted something, needed something smaller. Um, and I emailed Sound Devices, I said, look, I need something, I need something small. Have you, tell me, if you have got something in the pipeline? Because I'm just about to go and buy a Zatscom, which, <laughs> nothing against Zatscom, but I wasn't sure, you know, I'd heard kind of mixed reports about them. I went to look at a Max and it just felt a bit flimsy and a bit kind of, it didn't seem like it would stand up to the rigors of what I'd been doing. Um, And I was like, I can't can't put money into that.
0: I found that it's also a case of if you're a sound devices person, you know those menus and how to navigate them inside out. And switching over to a Zaxcom, it's not that they're worse it's just that they're so different yeah and when you're on a shoot and you need to you know turn on a limiter or do something like with the if you're used to sound devices you can just do it almost without looking where with you have to think too much when you want to be thinking about other things when you switch uh gear
1: yeah i think Zaxcom, they're definitely geniuses and they build in a lot of features into their um into their equipment but it's just stuff that i don't want to mess with i don't need to get involved in that on location you know when i'm kind of out and uh, just trying to survive in some torrential rain or kind of horrendous weather. I don't want it to be that complicated. And Sound Devices works on that front, but more than anything, the thing with the Max was I think it was just it didn't feel sturdy and bulletproof enough. You know, I feel like any bit of Sound Devices kit I've held, you know, I feel like I could kind of I could drop it, it could fall off a cliff, and you know, it would still be working at the bottom. In fact, I have got well, I did have um, my seven four four was involved in a plane crash. And uh, and it got stacked into the Mexican desert in a plane crash. And you know, when I found the box it was in later on amongst the wreckage, it was still rolling. You know, and it and it worked fine after that. I changed changed the hard drive just as a matter of precaution. Um, but actually, it was still rolling, and I tested it afterwards. So it was fine. But I, just, I changed the hard drive. But that was it. And uh, so you know, that's that's one of those things. You go, okay, well, that's that's a bit of kit I can put my faith in. But I don't want to diss Saxcom because it's just they're so advanced you sort of have to leap into that world and you have to commit to it and i've since you know got into their radio mics and and i think they're amazing and uh for the stuff that i do certainly the adventure stuff you know they 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 are amazing they enable things that that wouldn't be possible you can get coverage from stuff where you wouldn't be able to get coverage any other way um and also just expands our capability beyond what was possible kind of even you know even five years ago um in many ways as radio mics and as little personal Body pack recorders so i'm not dissing their stuff at all i'm just saying that their recorders at the time you know the portable ones like the max or the nomad didn't quite feel right for me
0: yeah that makes sense i'm personally a sound devices guy myself so i tend to agree with most of the things you're saying i live in canada and i've done a lot of recording in extreme cold not the extreme heat and uh i've never had i've never even thought about the sound devices not working for me they just they just work so why don't we talk about mics for a second? You mentioned uh, the four sixteen. Do you use uh, lavs or are you mostly booming?
1: Oh no no no! It's all um, it's all lavs really. Everyone wants radio mics on everyone all the time. Quite rightly so for adventure or just generally for any actuality or reality type show. You got to have everyone mic'd up. There's no way you can cover stuff. I mean, you know, we'll always try and get a boom in on something and it's, or. You know, even if you just have a, have something open to to open up the sound of a mic, but um, but yeah, it's radio mics all the way generally. And which ones are you using? Um, so I use pretty much exclusively Zaxcom transmitters now, and uh, I got I got a few different mics I use. Uh, DPA's are generally my kind of go-to mics for sort of everyday stuff, but then for adventure stuff, I found Countryman's uh, to be sort of the best, really, um, for several reasons. The B3s. Are mics that actually I kind of I rate quite highly. They, they don't sound as sweet as a DPA or. Uh, sank and COS-11 say, but they're just indestructible. You just can't break them. You know, I've put some of those things through some terrible abuse, you know, really seriously. Kind of tried my hardest to, to bust them and, uh, and those cables, are just you could abseil off them, almost it feels like. You know, I've seen them dragged along, you know. So just from that level, they're, they're pretty indestructible. So Countryman B3s are very good. And in the wet, in the rain, they're pretty good. And even going underwater when they come out of water, they're pretty good as well. They clear quite quickly. Um, yeah, they don't get too waterlogged. But also countrymen, their B6s, they have their uses as well. Um, they're in the toolkit for going abroad um, or for doing kind of extreme weather stuff, but they're a bit flimsy and a bit fragile, so you've got to be pretty careful with how they're rigged. But if you're going in the wet, if you're going to go swimming or it's going to be any kind of going underwater, they're probably the might that's going to pop up the best um, and, and be clear and good to go as soon as someone comes out of the water. Um, those are the ones I've had the most success with. I've tried so many different ways to waterproof mics, and uh, you know, even there's a Swiss company called Voice Tech who manufacture, I think, the only IP-rated waterproof lav mic, and, and that's flawed, that doesn't work. I've tried that and had that on shoots and had terrible troubles with it. So I generally stick with the Countryman B3s and B6s for adventure kind of stuff. Um, DPAs are pretty good, actually, even that, but, but the cables can be a bit flimsy on those but um is
0: this the 4060s or
1: yeah 4060s i've got some 4071s as well the kind of the peaked response which are better for winter kind of stuff yeah i've got some the 71s are good in the winter because they've got quite a high presence boost so as soon as people start piling on winter clothes you know jackets and scarves and that kind of thing you know i find you've almost got a portable kind of muffler box on them so you need something that's got that peaked response it's going to cut through things a bit better but equally, I find those a bit too bright for kind of summer use or for light clothing use. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 4060s, 4070 ones, generally 4060 ones, slightly lower sensitivity capsules.
0: So you mentioned keeping the microphones dry. What about your gear? If you're shooting in a rainstorm or worse yet in the windstorm in the desert? Yeah, that's obviously quite a factor. Um,
1: so I've got a, a rain cover that's a big zip up bag that basically that's kind of my primary line of defense. Um, and that's made by a company in the UK that kind of makes custom bags. They make sort of off-the-shelf kind of things, but but they'll also do stuff a bit bespoke for you as well. Um, and so I had one of their off-the-shelf models. I've had a couple of those for quite a while and they work pretty well. But then I went down to see him. He's, he's just like a one-man kind of operation. He's got a few seamstresses, a few, few ladies that work with him. And, and they'll sort of tailor things to your own demands. Um, I think there's a few. I don't think there's anything brilliant. There's nothing perfect on the market out there at the moment. It's quite frustrating. Um, there's a sound mixer who's LA-based, British guy, James Goddard, who I work with. Um, he's he's got a few things that he's used. I can't remember what the manufacturers were, but they're all. Everything's got its own little flaws. They don't quite work perfectly. Even this guy, um, the company is KT Systems in the UK. Even his initial design. Had a few design flaws, so I've had to go to him and get him to make something a little bit bespoke for me. But it's basically a big zip-up bag with a clear top that you can unzip it, roll it backwards and so you can work with the mixer open or you can zip it completely shut at the top and it's got little hand holes at the side that you can put your hands through and um, you can attach it to your harness um, that goes through there. So that's my first line of defense, but also I'm a big fan of um, The Petrol, do you know that that company Petrol? I think they're now bought out by Sackler. Yeah, they make a poncho, a sound poncho, which I think is brilliant, I love it to bits. And so I always have that hanging by me if I know we're gonna have some pretty serious rain or anything like that. Um, It's light enough it can just hang on the side of your mixer bag and um, it's just quick to deploy, you can pull it out, you can have it over your head and your shoulders in minutes, and it'll, you know, I've stood under waterfalls in that thing and it's fine. Or, you know, quick torrential downpours, you know, it can chuck it down with rain, you see a rain cloud coming in, Fill the first few spots, you got that thing on in minutes, and then as soon as the rain stopped, it comes off again and, uh, you know, try and hang it out to dry or drag it around in the breeze and it dries off pretty quickly. So I don't like being too encumbered by something all the time. I find Gore-Tex coats, you know, you can pile on Gore-Tex layers, but rain just gets through all the time. So I prefer to just work with just the poncho coming on and going off. Um if we're in a warm climate, you know, and, and I don't mind, you'll always get damp underneath, you know, you'll always get a bit of steam or sweat or whatever will get through. So you've got to just not mind getting wet, you've just got to protect the gear. But that double layer of a poncho over the top, and then this kind of zip-up bag with the clear <laughs> top. Um yeah, that, that works pretty well.
0: So you've talked about the microphones you're bringing. You've got ponchos. You've got bags. This isn't the sexiest question, but how do you actually get your gear from your home to all these places around the world? Are you shipping it or are you bringing it with you on the plane? what's the logistics of getting your whole kit halfway around the world?
1: Yeah, generally, we just travel with it. There's a couple of jobs I do. Stuff gets freighted out, but, um, but yeah, it just, just gets packed up in pelly cases and taken to the airport with us, and then uh, production meet the horrendous excess baggage charges, and I generally don't have to worry about it. Um, obviously, you can get into issues with bags getting lost in transit, if I think there's a chance of that happening, if we've got multiple... Um, transfers, you know, several legs of a journey to get from, from A to B, and there's a chance Kit's going to get lost on the way. And we need to shoot immediately. I'll probably take some core stuff as hand baggage, but generally i put stuff in the hold. Um, yeah, I've had, had a couple of journeys where, where stuff goes missing and you have to improvise when you get to location. So I think the important thing is just to be ready to shoot when you get there. Um, but, yeah, touch wood, haven't had any major, major problems.
0: Except for the plane crash.
1: Well, that was planned. Yeah, that that <laughs> wasn't an accidental plane crash. That that was a deliberate thing. <laughs> yeah, that that was an interesting challenge. That one because uh, we had to, we knew this plane was going to be crashed into the desert. It was all to be filmed for this documentary called The Plane Crash. And so we had to had to put some recorders and mics on board and um, try and predict where the plane was going to break up, where to put the recorders, how to package them up. No one quite knew what was going to happen. Whether there'd be a Instantaneous but short-lived fireball of a thousand degrees, or whether it would be a long, slow burn at a lower temperature, but for for several hours, or quite quite how it was going to happen. So um yeah, that just went in a metal aluminium flight case uh, with some holes drilled in the side of it, and some cable points and some extended uh, SMA aerial connectors, and um, put some radio mic receivers and a couple of seven in there, and uh and, and that was stuck in the air- aircraft, and with a bit of luck and a. Yeah, wing going a prayer, so to speak. It kind of uh, it survived.
0: So you had mics on a plane rolling that was planned to be crashed.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And and a whole bunch of mini cams, a whole bunch of GoPros, a f- couple of Phantom high speed cameras. Um, and yeah, I assume
0: we... you didn't get a chance to do a test run. Uh, no, no,
1: <laughs> no. So that's the thing. You never know how it's gonna how it's gonna work. And there was a plan for how it was gonna crash. And of course, it never quite worked out the plan that way. So. Yeah, it's a bit, but it survived and, and I packed in a load of heatproof materials just in case it was going to have a long, slow burn or even a quick fireball. Um, and of course, the upshot of that was that the recorders couldn't breathe, so they were, they were burning hot. I mean, they were so hot, but they were still turning, still rolling, both the recorders, when, when we found the wreckage.
0: Wow, that's an impressive story. Mm. That's really cool. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah it, was, it was quite something.
0: All the mics continued to work and everything during the crash? Well, unfortunately, we ended up in the situation
1: that uh, the plane was, was being flown under remote control until, until its moment that it crashed. So it was it had to take off with pilots, obviously, you need to do that. And, and to, to fly over populated areas, you have to have kind of human control. And then... At a point when it reached a point over the desert, the pilots were able to parachute out of the back of the plane. And, uh, and there were a team in a, in a follow plane, a light aircraft, who took over by remote control. And they were flying it uh, with the aim that they would crash it into this designated spot in the, in the desert. And they'd kind of bulldozed a kind of a landing strip or, or a crashing strip um, in the desert. And they were supposed to crash it there. At, um, and they were supposed to come down tail first so it would come down at an angle with the tail the, the back end hitting first but but it kind of went a bit wrong and it came down the nose first and it bust right at the point right where all our recorders were and unfortunately due to time constraints we didn't have an option to to fit recorders in different sections of the plane so we had to commit to that, so the recorders were working. But the, uh, all the mic wires got bust in the wreckage, so we got the initial kind of point of the crash, but we didn't get a really lengthy kind of aftermath of it. Wow, that's still really cool. Yeah, we, we, we got enough to be nominated for a, for a BAFTA craft award, so um, we we're pretty, pretty pleased with that.
0: For sure. Also, you went to the Amazon with David Beckham, is that true?
1: Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we followed him around for a few weeks on a little adventure that he wanted to go on, so that was quite interesting, yeah, seeing into his world. And, and how he might do an expedition.
0: <laughs> I bet it's a little different than Bear. Yeah,
1: yeah, a li- little different, yeah. He, he started out one leg of the journey on a light aircraft, but it was a bit small and uncomfortable. So they, they touched down and um, waited about five hours until they could get a, a, a private jet in to finish <laughs> that leg of that journey. But um, <laughs> it would have been quicker for them to stay on the light aircraft, really, but, but it was a bit uncomfortable for them.
0: Fair enough. So when you're recording in all these places, are you getting sound effects as well, or are you simply just getting the dialogue as best you can? Is there time for you to be getting ambiences for the editors and such?
1: Yeah, I think you always have have one one ear on trying to capture anything going on around you, you know, and your your primary source for their audio for dialogue is always the laughs, but equally, you know I 'll often try and back off and just try and get some clean boom audio if there's something nice going on around me sound wise. Um, I just try and get clean audio on the boom just to act as a live kind of or sync Atmos track for it. I always try and go off and just get some, some clean Atmos tracks, just some wild tracks. I always take uh, with me, I've got a Sherps, really nice Sherps stereo pair, MS pair, which is generally my kind of go-to boom mic unless I'm in a jungle and I know it's gonna struggle because the Sherp's are a bit prone to suffering from humidity. But yeah, I always try and get some nice stereo atmoses where I can. And in fact, one thing I always take with me, which is just a really super quick, handy way of grabbing something if you're short of time, um, is a Zoom recorder. So I have a Zoom H4, um, which has kind of been around the world with me. I've had a couple of those, managed to break a couple. Um, they're not the most durable things, but, but they're great for something that you can just pull out and instantly have a stereo recorder to just grab some great wild tracks of. i was out in marrakesh recently and uh in the center of marrakesh there's this crazy square called jamal fanar and it's just full of snake charmers and people with these playing drums and all these amazing sounds and it was just able to grab stuff there and you know partly it's convenience of having it available and being able to pull out something that you can grab a quick stereo at myself but also it's not drawing attention to yourself. you know as soon as you kind of pull out you know as soon as you're there with a kind of a big furry kind of windjammer and recorder and everything people come around you and just you know want to know what you're doing and stuff so to be a bit more discreet you can easily whip out the zoom and grab stuff and that's something that I introduced um to one of the shows I supervised uh for for quite a few years I supervised the UK version of The Apprentice um for about eight years and uh I took that all ISO multi-track recording. When we started doing that show, we started doing it with uh, four-channel mixers, so each sound recordist would have three radio mics and a boom mic, and we would just be retuning radio mics or splitting the radio mic coverage up amongst uh, multiple recordists, so we had everyone covered. But uh, as technology progressed and sound devices brought out the 788 and um, radio mics kind of got a bit better, we got a bit more bandwidth on radio mics, I took that all ISO recording and wireless links to cameras, and so we had all these ISO tracks but they were, ended up being a bit too clean for post-production sometimes. You know, you don't get any of that ambience. So I got each crew to have a Zoom recorder. So every location we'd go, if, if we'd spend you know, a vaguely reasonable amount of time there, every crew could just hold still for 30 seconds or a minute and just try and get a bit of room tone, a bit of atmos, if it was just in an office building or whether it was out on a street or in a, in a market in London or anywhere we'd go. And when we get back to the, the studio section of the shoot, um, we'd be in the boardroom and we could just trim down those Atmos tracks and give them meaningful names. names and I'd just send those direct to the dubbing mixer and, and he loved it. It meant he could just bed the radio mics in into any scene so much so much more easily than if you just had the clean ISOs. So I'm actually quite a big fan of the Zoom Zoom H4. It's kind of a good tool. I mean, it doesn't have to be that one, but that's just the one I've ended up using. But any any little portable handheld stereo recorder is is a good tool for collecting, collecting Atmos tracks.
0: The other thing that you're kind of both blessed with and cursed with is on the shows where you're in these uh, exotic environments, you've got to get the sound of bear slicing the eyeball out of an animal or something like that. Is a lot of that done in post or are you able to capture all those disgusting gooshes and smushes and such?
1: Yeah. I mean, none of that is done in post. Um, Anything that we get, we, we get on location, you know, and we don't have a chance to go back and get it as wild tracks because we move at too fast a pace, you know, there's no time for that, you know, we, we shoot pretty dynamically. Um, whilst it's it's not all kind of a free-flowing kind of documentary, you know, we, we sort of, you know, scenes are kind of constructed and, and filmed, but we don't have time, we can't go back and redo stuff like that, Or go, no, there's never any cutaways, everything is done live, but is very good In terms of, you know, a lot of the action happens near his microphone, you know, stuff gets held up in front of camera so that people can see it or he's very close to something, if he's doing something working with his hands, it's usually safer to work closer to your body, you know, if you're dealing with sharp things, you know, small knives or whatever that will get those smaller sounds that inevitably happens closer to your body. Otherwise, if it's a bigger sound with like a machete or something, it's usually loud enough to capture. And it's just, that, that kind of thing, it's just about good mic placement. It's just about trying to keep an open sound. Going back to microphones, that's where the DPAs are very good. They, they have a very open sound. The Countryman's not so good for that. They're a bit more closed in. They're indestructible or waterproof, depending on the B3 or the B6. But actually, for that kind of thing, I'll always put a DPA on Bear just because it's an open sound. So you, you want to suck in as much of the ambience of where he's at if he's in a jungle you know, you'll try and have some ambience on the boom or whatever, but uh, but you want to get get as much of that stuff. And because you don't get a chance for second goes, you need to get those, those little moments where you get those little noises of something that's happening, you know, an eyeball bursting open as you kind of chews into it or something, you know, gushing out of his mouth yeah you kind of you just need to get an open sound and that can be quite challenging as you probably know in Canada you know when you've got loads of winter clothing on you know thick clothes Gore-Tex jackets you know down jackets all that kind of stuff yeah to, to get a good open sound can be quite hard sometimes so that's often the big challenge
0: for sure The one of the reasons that I wanted to reach out to you and get you to come on the show is because when I watch these shows I think Who's the poor fool with the boom mic behind the camera that's running through the Arctic waters or whatever like that? Are you sitting there behind the camera with a giant jug of water, drinking it whenever you want while Bear is squeezing liquid out of
1: dung or something? No, not not at all. Not at all. I think one of the reasons we kind of work so well and the show's been so successful is because it's a very natural kind of dynamic. We're all there with him. It's a small team, relatively. We achieve quite a lot with a very small team. Uh, we're all very close-knit and we're just, we're all there, you know, whether it's kind of day or night. We, we follow, you know, if he goes, if he goes through the water, we go through the water. You know, I mean, if it's somewhere that that obviously you can't swim it; we'll be in a boat. we'll have a little boat set up or something that we can travel with, but you know if it's wading through a swamp or whatever, we're right there with him. you know, I've been there and you know trying to keep my kit up high out of the water um but yeah you you're right there with him, and there's been times when we've had to get kit out somewhere pretty inaccessible, so i've I've had to stash my sound kit in a pelli case and and swim out to sea with it being pushed in front of me to get up onto a shipwreck. I've had to put my sound kit in a boat and have it shipped out. While I've had to jump out of a helicopter into the ocean and then swim to it to get to it because it wasn't it wasn't safe to put me in the boat um, to get out there. So you have to go wherever you have to go, and uh, but that's part of the adventure, and that's something that I love. You know, the whole adventure side of things has combined my two real great passions, and that's sound and, uh, and also adventure, really, um, and managing to go out and have, have a bit of fun out, out in the wilds. And I think we're lucky now The technology for sound has got, got much more interesting. I think when I first started out, the kind of sound work that I did, most TV sound that I did was all done quite basically with a couple of radio mics and a boom and a small four channel mixer and it didn't provide a lot of scope for playing with the tech playing with the gear but we have so many toys now technology has expanded so much that it's got a lot more interesting from that point of view giving us a lot more like flexibility to kind of do bigger things which i think makes it much more satisfying that certainly we couldn't do kind of 20 years ago and it was it was more frustrating it wasn't the most satisfying sound experience you know i came from wanting to work in in music and started out in recording studios where you have all these kind of uh all the facilities available to you, and it's all about sound. And then you get into TV, and sound is usually the afterthought. It's the thing that should just happen. And there's so many things that happen outside of your control, and you have to try and manage them. Um, It could be very frustrating. And that was always slightly underwhelming for me. but the sense of being able to go to amazing places you know open that door that said no entry to it and step right through it or to go and have experiences that that you just couldn't have you know even if you had like millions and millions of dollars in the bank you know you still couldn't buy a lot of the experiences that that I've been lucky enough to have but now as technology has expanded uh, we have these all these great bits of kit um takes that sort of sound geek kind of box that I think we probably all have and in terms of loving a few gadgets and toys to play with You know, I think that it's come a long way and uh, it's it's got a lot more interesting.
0: Can you give me some examples of what you're meaning with the tech improvements?
1: Well, just since we've entered into the whole kind of era of of portable recorders, you know, when I started, we used to to just plug into cameras. You know, I started working on bear shows 10 years ago and we'd record audio on the cameras. And so you're always tied to the camera by an umbilical cable, a curly cable. Um, And so actually we talked earlier about, was I, well, we're on the bear shoot, so we're always there with the camera and... Yeah, literally, we were kind of within six feet of him because we were tied by a cable, and so if the cameraman wanted to go somewhere, um, we'd have to have no choice, and we'd have to do it do it connected by a cable because that was how we recorded audio back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we have separate sound recorders, you know, the sound devices gear, there's the 788 or the 633. I mean, the 633 is just such a dream to use. It's so small. But also now the Zatscom radio mics, you know, now we have wideband radio mics, so we can do many more radio mics than we could before, Um, with our little narrowband gear that we used to have and now the zatscom stuff just enables us to do outrageous things with smaller crews you know you can run like 30 radio mics really easily on a shoot with with a very small crew of people and previously you'd have needed i don't know like an ob truck or something to do that i've just just done a few shoots the last couple of years with zatscoms and and kind of limited crew numbers but uh there's just just no other way we're just achieving stuff now on shoots that you couldn't do couldn't have done five years ago. When I say Zatscoms, they're using that as the term for their recording radio mic packs, which are just great, the fact they record these time stamped files. Um, they're pretty user friendly once you set the menus to the way you want them to work. They're, they're pretty good, they're a bit quirky and there's a few pitfalls for them, quite a few pitfalls, it's easy to get things wrong and, uh, and cause problems for post production or whatever, but, but as long as you nail all those things mm-hmm. early on and create a good workflow on location, yeah, we're, we're, we're pulling shoots out of the bag that that just wouldn't have been possible 5 years ago you know 30 40 contributors all kind of doing adventure type activities you know going beyond the realms of radio mic coverage and just the digital transmission system so you can pack in so many more radio mics into a really small bandwidth of spectrum I've done a shoot recently had two elements to it there was a, a kind of a rig team that was sort of working in a kind of on location but a kind of studio construct on location they were using analog radio mics and and for the sort of 25 radio mics they needed they were using I don't know like 100 150 megahertz of bandwidth just to pack in that many radio mics because they had to cope with analog analog um, kind of frequency planning and uh, intermodulation that kind of thing and I, I was able to take you know, 20, 25 radio mics out on location, and with the digital spectrum, you just hit them every 7, 700 kilohertz apart, and uh, you can fire up 30 radio mics, and they work first time. You know, no problem. And so you can fit that into kind of small bandwidths that you can use, um, you can use on location without having to get into any really complicated licensing issues or worrying too much about interference from outside. And then because they record anyway, that frees you up if you do get interference, then then you know you've got the backup of the recording. Or you can just send those radio mics out into the world to go and record and film stuff and, and go beyond the range of, of the wireless issues that we've got. And the fact that we're still recording on portable recorders that can only really record 12 radio mics you know, per, per sound recordist. Um, and they're maybe running around between multiple cameras Um, it doesn't really matter as long as the time code's all bulletproof. Um, It's all there and you you get that back at the end of the day and then when it all syncs up and uh, and, and post-production, they're kind of delighted, then you know know you've done a good job and you know it wouldn't have been possible you've just done something that yeah, would just not be possible kind of five years ago.
0: The knowledge of this new gear that I assume is one of the things that you're taking to the Adventure Film Collective. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this whole uh, concept?
1: Yeah, so there's a bunch of us that worked with... Bear have worked with Bear, still work with Bear, and um, and on other projects. We've been lucky enough to have other adventures together, and um, we sort of come and go. We don't don't work exclusively with each other all the time, but we thought it would be good for us to kind of expand things and form. So so we formed this group. We're calling the Adventure Film Collective. It started out mainly with the idea that we could kind of promote ourselves within the genre but we sort of wanted to expand on it a bit more and make it a bit more inclusive. And so we've sort of started out really by having a social media presence. It's early days yet, but we want to expand it and um, we want to get people to kind of follow us on social media and we want to start putting up blog posts a bit more and um, and hints and tips and try and start a bit of a community for adventure filmmakers really, um, where we can kind of share information, hints and tips, a bit like what you're doing with your podcasts, I guess. You know, every shoot I go on, anytime I work with another sound recordist, you know, I always pick up hints and tips. You always see how someone does something differently and you know, I've been lucky enough to travel the world and have some great experiences, but I don't have all the answers and uh, sometimes you're trying stuff out for the first time and there's often is someone who's been there and, and done it before you. So it's great to share information. And um, you know, we want to sort of build that up, hopefully get a bit of a community together. And then, you know, we want to get to the stage where we can maybe pitch our own ideas, get big brands involved. We're not entirely sure where it's going to take us, but um we thought it'd be a good, good thing to do.
0: So you're the sound guy. Yeah. What what are
1: the other seven
0: or six people?
1: We've got a director who's also, he's a kind of a series director as well, but he directs on the ground as well. Uh, we've got a couple of remote access specialists um, ropes and health and safety and kind of aerial specialists we've got a couple of directors of photography uh, we've got another camera who's also kind of a drone specialist and and so we sort of cover a few different disciplines but we've basically got our bases covered that we could put together we reckon we could put together a shoot anywhere in the world you know of any kind of scale whether it's a small single camera unit or, or a big multi-camera Kind of uh, commercial or, or adventure reality show. We think we've got the skill set and the contacts list to do that. Um, and you mentioned about bringing new technology to the fore. You know, we're very keen to push that forwards. And and I think you know I try to do that with audio and have done in the past by using Zaxcoms etc. to um, to push how many contributors we can record in 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 quite extreme environments. Um, and also, I think we, we want to explore the virtual reality side of things as well, which I think is, is something that's coming our way and people are looking into. And so that's something that, that, that is definitely on our list to try and explore on a kind of a commercial basis as well. Um, I've been sort of looking into that a little bit and seeing what we can do as regards sound capture on location. And, and that's maybe a direction we can go in as well. So it's still exciting times and, and definitely want to bring technology to the fore of that front. You know, with sort of 360 camera systems as well and drones, you know, the kind of possibilities are just, you know, just just huge.
0: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. If you're planning to shoot something in a really remote location, you don't want to hire people who have never been in such a situation before. So the Adventure Film Collective makes a lot of sense to me as kind of a one-stop shop if you're a production company that needs to shoot somewhere like that boom, we got everything we need right here.
1: Yeah, but we want to kind of expand that, and, and we see a value in sort of sharing knowledge and, um, and putting that out there and, and having a presence and, and it not just being about us and, um, and seeing, seeing what it grows into, really.
0: So what's the website and Twitter handle for the Adventure Film Collective? Sure, so you can follow us on Twitter with at uh, Adventure
1: Film Co. And uh, our website is www.adventurefilmcollective.com. And we're also on Instagram as well. I think we're Adventure Film Collective on Instagram. And and we're on Facebook as well, so yeah, we'd love to get some more likes and people to follow us. And and it's still early days, we need to get some more stuff up on, on the website we want to be putting hints and tips up on there, you know, and we want people to share their own experiences and where I've been, been able to chat to you about things, you know, hopefully we can then post photographs and pictures that sort of help describe things a bit better and, and hints and tips and that kind of thing and, and encourage an arena that people can all share knowledge. Cool. You know, I think, I think we can all learn. I certainly never stop learning, you know, they're definitely not big enough to, to realize that, I, you know, I learned something new on every job, whether it's from, from someone else or from an environment and the more we can kind of share that information, the better, I think.
0: Cool, so I'll make sure that all of those links you just mentioned are up on the show page on the Tonebenders website. Uh, Pete, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. You've been uh, extremely enlightening, and I've learned a lot listening to you. I just have one kind of uh, sexy question for you at the end here. I don't know if sexy is the right word. Definitely but, not, head. Uh, uh... What's the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, see
1: me, you see me on the end of this. Uh, a Juicy yeah. question.
0: Maybe that's what we'll go with. Juicy question. The, the gossipy question. What's the closest uh, you've come to really genuinely getting hurt or some kind of uh, mishap that's happened on the bear ground shows. Um,
1: I mean, yeah, we we run a
0: pretty tight
1: ship generally, but inevitably stuff does happen. I mean, probably the biggest event actually was pretty much captured on camera when uh, we we sort of really thought we'd done Bear some serious harm. And and in fact, you know, a matter of a few inches kind of would have probably been been a death blow for him. Um, It was on a shoot in Canada, actually, out your neck of the woods. Um, We were demonstrating it was for a special called Science of Survival and Bear was demonstrating how to, uh, how to arrest uh, a, an ice slide if, you, if you're sliding down the side of a mountain. Um, and we, had our cameraman was following him on a sledge. So he had a, he had a sled. Um, Bear was flying down the side of this mountain. He demonstrates how you're supposed to roll over and dig an ice axe in and that will slow, slow you down. Uh, and that was all fine. So he demonstrated that, but our cameraman didn't have a way to stop and his, his sledge ploughed straight into Bear, um, heard this almighty thump. Uh, We couldn't see anything because all this spray, snow spray was coming up. Um, We just heard the crash and and heard heard the screams and uh, started piling down the mountain, not knowing quite what we were going to find. Um, Saw quite a lot of blood in the snow, um, some broken glass and a bear lying on the side of the mountain. Luckily, in a sense, the collision had happened into Bear's leg, um, if it had been his head. I think it definitely would have killed him, you know, so you're talking the distance from your thigh to your head is kind of what saved his life, um, but his legs started swelling up, you know, this massive lump on there, everyone thought his leg was broken, and so he was helicoptered off the mountain, in fact the cameraman was helicoptered off with him, his his face was all smashed up pretty badly, his nose was broken, blood everywhere, the camera was trashed, um, yeah, and and. It, Luckily, the cameraman had just broken his nose and Bear just suffered some pretty bad bruising, but it was game over for the shoot. Yeah. Um, so we had to go out and reshoot that about three months later. Um, it was kind of covered. It was featured on the show um, with a bit of behind-the-scenes footage. Um, but, yeah, there's there's been a few other sort of minor incidents that um, could have gone wrong but but didn't as regards to people becoming unclipped from ropes um, where, where they shouldn't have been, uh, mainly contributors. You know, I think as, as crew... We're sort of we're booked back on these shoots. You know, we keep coming back for more mm-hmm. because we're pretty competent. You know, and and the safety team are amazing and they always back us up. But what's great about these guys is that they know when to cut us some slack. You know, we've always got spotters, people watching what we do. Um, two of the collective, Meg and Stanny, but also teams that they pull in, um, they're amazing. They'll give us the freedom to move when we need to move, but they'll know when to just kind of come and clip us on. We spend a lot, a lot, a lot of our time shooting with harnesses on um just kind of climbing harnesses and and there's always someone there if we're somewhere a bit dodgy that that can just put a carabiner on us and clip us on and make sure we're safe um regarding bear uh with his own safety i think that it was it was pretty low key in the first two three series i think it was a point in 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 about the third series that on a show that i was on and and bear kind of made it known that his uh I don't think you mind me saying this, but his wife had said that any uh, any stunt or anything that that could involve his death, we kind of had to had to up the safety on a bit. We sort of were pretty low key on the safety. Bears, you know, he he, he does all his own stunts. He does everything there, and uh, but we he figured that yeah, if something was going to go wrong, if it was going to result in death, yeah, we'd need to we needed to to improve the safety. And from there on, it always has done. Um, personally, I've never felt in any any real danger myself. Um, but I think that's just confidence in the team around me and and knowing your own abilities and and trust in the kit as much as we trust in in the sound equipment we use you know you trust in you know you know you're safe in a climbing harness and a carabiner you know how to double check yourself you know um so it's it's just trust in kit really and and, and trust in the people watching us and that's why we work so well as a team um uh, is I think just that trust and that knowledge of how everyone else works. You know, it's like as a sound recordist, you get to know instinctively what your cameraman's going to do next. If it's someone you work with on a regular basis, you know where he's going to go. You can anticipate his moves, his camera moves, everything else. And the same thing happens in the wild, in the mountains uh, or the snow or wherever. You know, the safety team can anticipate our moves. We anticipate bears move, the camera moves. It's just that... It's kind of a beautiful dance, really, of just everyone kind of sort of working in sync together without anything being spoken. You know, when it all works out, you kind of, you get a great feeling. And at the end of a shoot, if you know you've nailed it, it's it's, it's a really great feeling.
0: Cool. Well, again, thanks for talking to us today. This has been really great. Uh, Pete Lee, check the Tone Tonebenders website for the links to the Adventure Film Collective, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Huge thanks to Pete Lee of the Adventure Film Collective for taking part in our discussion today. Big thanks to Stacey DePass for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. Today's episode was edited by one of our amazing listener volunteers, Victor Zotman. You can follow the show via Twitter at The Tonebenders. Go to tonebenderspodcast.com to find the show links and notes or even leave a comment. You can also check out facebook.com slash tonebenderspodcast to be kept up to date on what's going on with the show. You can also leave us a tip via PayPal. The link can be found easily through our website. As you hopefully know, Renee and I do everything on this podcast on our own and in our spare time. So if you feel you get anything out of the show and you can spare a few bucks to help us cover the costs of getting these interviews and discussions out in the world, it would be greatly appreciated. And if you feel like you cannot help us in that way, you can always write us an email at info at and offer your help editing future shows. Or you can design three to five second audio transitions we can use in the show as bumpers to get us in and out of different segments. The easiest way to help us out is to tell people about us. If you know someone out there that might like the show, let them know that we exist and tell them how to find us. Okay, that's it for this episode. I can tell you we already have a bunch of great stuff lined up for the next few months. I'm looking forward to getting it all out to you guys. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for
1: listening to Tone You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen
0: on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to tonevendorspodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at infotonevendorspodcast.com. At